Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. This week on Reset the Podcast, I'm talking to the energetic and insightful Kit Krugman, the Managing Director of Co Collective. Having a creative outlet is a key part of our own well being. And so I love Kit talking through all things creativity, career paths, and kindness. Together, we discuss the essence of what makes a great modern leader. Kit believes in creating a clarity of vision and focus, excellent communication skills authenticity and how to be authoritative as a woman. We also reflect on the importance of leaders recognising when it's time to reaffirm or a time to change their company's core values, something that I've discussed with many leaders recently. It says that whilst it's important that these values endure, they should also evolve. What might have worked for five people won't work for 500 or 5,000 as the behaviours, culture and ways of working within a company change and grow, their values should too. And leaders have a duty to support this growth. So if you're currently challenged with growing a business through this time of economic disruption, this conversation will be both thought-provoking as well as inspiring. If you enjoy the podcast this week, please share it with your colleagues and hit the like button. It really does make a difference. Thank you. It's so lovely to see you today. How are you doing? I'm good. It is so lovely to be here. I'm so, I'm so thrilled. Oh, well, one of the questions that I ask at the beginning of often at my podcast, but at every workshop we do is on a scale to one of one to 10, how energized do you feel today? So how energized do you feel today? It's a good question. I think for me, I think I'm a six. I feel really energized by this conversation. But I also have a one and a half year old. So there is a uh, level of energy that is that is available to me because of my sleeping patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. And thank you for sharing that as a six studio. You know, whenever I'm speaking, this is a very um, societal thing to say and, and therefore highly inappropriate. But so often mm-hmm. when I speak mm-hmm. to Americans, they're very close to a 10. And I'm always like, guys, you don't have to be a 10 because you're an American and overly excited. It's fine. (laughs) You know, that is actually so interesting because I do feel like there's an extraordinary pressure just around, especially American focus on productivity as value and having energy and using energy. And it's less about the kind of sustainable, renewable energy and more about just kind of always being on. And that's part of the reason I said I'm a six. I, I, I don't believe, and I think it creates an impossible standard to say that everyone's always operating at a 10 because we're not. No, no, you're right. And I think, and it's great. It's great to hear that from you. And we're, well, that sets us up nicely for the conversation, I think, because <laughs> I was really excited about having you on the show today, because I think we share quite a lot of 
of beliefs, um, yeah. similarities. We just worked out, actually, we met, we met a long time ago, I think, when I was running yeah. Oyster Catchers. Um, but let's talk to me a little bit about, well, let's start from the kind of the beginning of your career. Maybe what things came and collided together to bring you to where you are today? Yeah, it was interesting when I was thinking about what reset moments brought me to where I am today. The first one that came to mind was actually a really pivotal moment in my career where after college, I spent a year living in Costa Rica mm. and I decided to just completely, you know, all my friends were moving to New York and kind of starting off their career. And I said, you know what, I actually just want to do something different. I want to teach. I want to be in a culture that's different than mine and learn. And I did that for a year, which was an amazing experience. But after that, I was ready to think about, okay, what now? And I decided at that moment, having been in a less structured environment that I wanted a lot of structure. And so I actually moved back to Boston to start doing a post back in pre-med and working wow. in a lab. <laughs> Very different. Very, very different. I was working in a lab at, at Mass General Hospital, which is an amazing hospital. And I started doing a post back at Tufts where I was, the first class I was taking was organic chemistry. And I had never in my life quit anything. I mean, it was just, I was such a perfectionist. I was so driven. And I did one week of this post pack and every fiber in my body was like, this is not the right path for you. And so I quit actually. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know, that's so interesting. We're here where you came to next because um, uh, one of my first podcasts was with a brilliant woman called Keris Bright. She's now the mm. CMO of the BBC and she started yeah. as a scientist did her degree and then yeah. wanted to do a doctorate so she started her doctorate and actually said something very similar now she didn't quit mm. but um it and she carried on and and she got a lot out of it but she actually found it very hard and and didn't like it that much mm. but when later on in her life she had a reset moment where she did quit something yeah. it came back to that that moment in time of doing something that you don't you really know you don't fit with yeah and actually you should make that reset and it's and sometimes it's great to stick it out but um, sometimes you just need to give up so what did you do so I quit and much to I'm sure many people's chagrin including my parents who <laughs> were like what's happening um, but they were very supportive and I started looking for a job and, and what the reason I quit was because everything that I had ever done was about creativity. And I went to creative arts camp. I did drama. I did theater. When I was down in Costa Rica, I was teaching art and everything was about that intersection for me of where creativity meets business and how you think about structural creativity and how you unleash creativity from people. And I actually think that doctors, I have a number of friends who are doctors, can be extraordinarily creative. It is a problem-solving profession. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's amazing. Yet the pathway to get there is incredibly linear. You have to have incredible endurance. And I just felt like that journey for me was going to be too locked in and not enable enough experimentation and being around sort of creative and innovation thinking in order to do that. So I quit. 
And I started looking for jobs and I said, anything creative, just anything, whether it's in the arts, whether it's teaching, whatever. But of course, this was in the, uh, this was to, to date me here, this is 2008. So it was the financial crisis and there were no jobs to be found. I had a total crisis. I said, what did I go to college for? What did I waste all of that money, resources, time and energy on? No one will hire me. They won't believe me if I say, I swear I'm smart. I know I have no experience. <laughs> and finally, I got a, a job waiting tables. And it was one of the most pivotal moments, jobs of my career, actually. Oh, why? Because a couple things. One, first of all, I'm a consultant now. There is no better training for consulting than waiting tables. You have clients, you have a lot of them, you have all of them all at once. They all have interesting needs, demands. You're, you're trying to think about how to triage those. You have to communicate with a broad set of diverse stakeholders constantly and you're moving at momentum, you're creating pace. It is absolutely the best training you can have. Yep. For That's number one. Number two, I met two of my best friends who have been my best friends for life. Oh, nice. Amazing. Who are also in moments of transition and we're working at the restaurant. Um, and, and then three, it, led me to some other opportunities. So then I started, I finally convinced someone at a very, very small um, marketing firm to give me an opportunity as an account executive. And that was half the day. And then the other half day, I would go wait tables. And that exposed me to the advertising and marketing space and piqued my interest around what was happening there. And then that enabled me to get a, an opportunity at um, Mullen, which is now Mullen Low in Boston. Yep. Yeah. So interesting. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, how something mm -hmm. in time, I've told this story so many times, but my first job was for a small, very small surf shop in Cornwall on a beach. Parent <laughs> It's there. It's called Parent Surf. It was run by this amazing man, John Heath, who... Mm -hmm sadly died a number of years ago and when and when we and we all loved him he was an extraordinary man he got a you know first oxford super bright but decided his boys his wife living in Cornwall was the thing he wanted to do but he brought in mm. skateboarding to the uk he was very preeminent in new ideas around surfing but like mm. you i learned some extraordinary things working in a shop but what was also interesting is when we all went to the funeral so many of us were entrepreneurs Mm. And we all chatted together. We hadn't seen each other for years. And we'd be like, oh, yeah, I can hear John in my ears going, get the customer in, listen to the customer, do this for the customer, do this for your team, reward them. You know, and we're like, oh, my God, how extraordinary. One job in a surf shop has defined the way we run our businesses in our lives. It's mm. That really resonates with me. And I think sometimes we're, we're, we're too linear about the way that we think about success and the training that you need in order to build businesses, build companies, build teams. I mean, for me, that was extraordinary leadership training and remains mm -hmm. leadership training this day. Teaching, by the way, teaching kindergartners, which is what I was doing before, was the best leadership training that I could have had. Yeah, yeah. She said a phrase there, too linear, too linear in the way we train our leaders. Tell me a little bit more about that. What does that mean? 
I think that leadership, especially today, is very complex. I mean, we're working with a lot of leaders in, in the work that I do, and there, there is such a diversity of stakeholders right now. And there's also a recognition of a greater diversity of stakeholders, including the environment, right? It's, it's not only your employees, it's your it's not only your customers, it's not only your, your immediate team. There's so many different stakeholders that you have to think of when you are leading today. Yeah. And, and yet leadership training, I mean, first of all, there's not much of it. Let's just start there. Right. There's not much leadership training and there's there's some great programs in larger corporations. There's great management and leadership training because they've developed it internally. And there's also MBAs. And I have a ton of friends who've gone through MBA programs that that focuses on a, a, a way, a way of learning in lots of different ways, depending on what school. However, there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on traditional principles of management versus kind of new and emerging ways to lead and manage a diverse set of stakeholders. And so for me, the the best leaders that I've had the privilege of working around with for have collected their wisdom around how to lead from the myriad of different experiences that they've had, whether that's being at a surf shop, being a mother, Mm -hmm. being a daughter, being a waitress, those are the kind of aggregate of experiences that actually helps you understand how is it that I leverage my leadership capacity and learn from others around me? Mm, that's very interesting, isn't it? That's a really, that's a fascinating observation. I think you're right. Cause I always think, you know, leaders so often show great curiosity, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's that mm. learning from experiences. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about, and, and this is, you know, so up your street. And, and, and then I want to come out into the, the broader thing around purpose a bit, but let's stick on yeah. leadership for a minute because the modern leader, mm. you know, a lot talked about them. Mm. What for you make, what, what, you know, you work with a lot of them. What is the essence of a great modern leader? What kind of qualities, what things do you look for or do you help them with? Mm. For me, it's a couple of things. Number one, a clarity of vision and focus. So what is it that you are trying to achieve and how do you translate that? into the experience that you're creating for your team or the people around you. And people underestimate how frequently you need to communicate that and how clear you need to make that. I would need to say, you know, we are gonna turn this water bottle red. That is the only thing we're doing. We've worked with so many teams who wanna make a list of 15,000 of the top priorities. I said, but when you look at the case studies and when you look at the experience, the leaders that really do extraordinary things actually have singular focus and they say, this is what we're doing. This is the only thing we're doing. The other things fall under it. Yeah. Yeah. Clarity of yeah. vision, clarity of vision, clarity of focus, enabling other people to focus. Number two, authenticity. I mean, I know that's oversaid, but it really is true. You have to lead in a way that feels authentic to you. You, you can look at other people for models but where you really get in trouble is trying to emulate someone else's style or um, trying to be someone you're not because people can always sense that they can feel that it, it will never feel good for you. So you have to find the way you have to trust your instincts. You have to be open to learning and you have to do it in a way that works for you personally. Yeah. 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 I completely agree with that. And that's a, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I think it's a lot, as you say, it's such a big word 
Um, but it's the thing that we obviously, like you, talk to leaders about a lot, particularly yeah. from being authentic, being open mm -hmm. up, being vulnerable. And I think it's interesting that I find a lot of leaders don't even know really how to do that because they've never had to. And they don't really know. There's a fine balance between what they're going, what, I need to talk about my divorce or I need to talk about mm -hmm. time and cope at work. You're going, well, maybe, but not necessarily. But what feels right for you? And then they don't really know what feels right for them. I think this is so interesting. So I, I have to tie this back. I'm reading a book about parenting right now because I'm a new parent and that's dominating the way that I'm thinking about a lot of things. But one of the things that the parenting book by Janet Lansbury that I'm reading that is amazing. Um, it's called No Bad Kids. It's amazing. You should all read it. But um, but one of the things that it says is it, it's very important for your children to know that you are in control and know that you are that you have taken up your authority. One of the things that I've observed in working with leaders that leaders that have ambivalence about their own authority and their own power, their team can feel it. And so I actually think what's really interesting is how you occupy the power and the authority. Being, being in charge and taking up authority is you also have to do it. Like you actually have to take that responsibility on. Yes. And I think that's, that's complicated because I think people get confused when they say you need to be vulnerable. You need to be, which is true. I think you need to be authentic. You need to share when you don't have the answers. And in fact, Yep. Most, most of the time you don't, and that's okay, but you still need to be clear that you're going to help the team find the answers yes. and that you've created a space where they can, and you have to occupy that authority. And so that's where I think the lines get a little blurred. People take the idea of vulnerability and they, they say, okay, I need to, I need to show my belly. I need to show that I'm, I'm, you know, scared and weak and that's not necessarily fully true. Now, if you are scared, you can say, you know what? I'm scared too. This is a scary time, but I know this team can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the difference. And I completely agree. Um, in my book, there's a, there's a wonderful guy. You probably know him actually. Steve Hatch is the VP of Europe of Meta. Yeah. And he, in uh, my book, Let's Reset, where I talked to lots of people about their mm -hmm. resilience and well-being, he talked about a psychotic episode he had in his mm -hmm. late 20s. Yeah. Um, at, you know, kind of out of nowhere, took him over a year to recover. He was hospitalized and he now talks very openly about this and you know, has done a lot within Meta and a lot for other people around talking around that and the impact. And I, and I think you're right. For me, he does two things. One, he goes, look, you can open up and talk about things that have happened and the way that you still handle it. So he talks very much about how does he keep mm -hmm and keep looking after his well-being so he can perform at that massive level that he does mm -hmm. but also fantastic for other people to look up to mm -hmm. and I find now actually parents so mm -hmm. you know, I often talk to parents who go oh this has happened to my child what am I going to do a similar or a different or some sort of episode look at Steve Hatch look at one how he dealt with it how he talks about it imagine if he was your dad now and do that mm. parenting for your children and and that point of show it but be in control yeah 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 and I think um the other thing about that is just not confusing what it means to have boundaries versus not have boundaries I think you were touching on that in what you said yeah. earlier yes it's it's not you know you gave the example of talking about your divorce right now there are it is important 
I think one of the biggest leadership challenges, honestly, one of the biggest personal challenges is establishing and setting boundaries, knowing what your boundaries are, maintaining them, caring for them, showing that they're real, showing that they matter. And I think that's a big leadership challenge right now, especially in a more hybrid digital world where boundaries are more blurred than ever. You have to really, you have to really care for them. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Let's move that on a little bit more because, you know, now you talk, you know, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the business you're in now and maybe the reset moment there. But you talk about forget company values, (laughs) which which I love because, you know, for us and in our seven needs test, the the last one is all around purpose. Could not talk more about values, but you, you talk about it's time for action principles mm. is that right and yeah mm-hmm. um tell me about that what's that mean mm. yeah so you know we've done a lot of work we, we have a lot of folks coming to us and ask asking for we need to look at our values yeah and there's a the couple things about values that that we've learned through experience and through some of the research that i've done values are, are often descriptive words right so collaborative First of all, collaborative means something different to every single person. You would define collaborative slightly differently than I would define collaborative. And then people decide what that means in terms of how they act and operate. I would say, well, okay, you told me that being collaborative is important here. So when I was creating this product, I decided I needed to talk to every single team member, get their input, and before I could move forward. And then once I did that, I decided it was everyone had weighed in. And then I was ready to share it with you. And you would say, okay, well, we actually need to ship that product yesterday. So <laughs> that's yeah. okay. Right? Great collaboration, but too late. Right. So I think what we're trying to get to, the point we're trying to make in saying, you know, it's not about values, it's about action principles, it's about behavior, is being much more explicit about what do you mean when you say a, a value and so what we do in a lot of our work is we actually rewrite them. We write a principle and we write a description of what that principle means. And then we ladder that into what that means for leadership behavior. Because one of the biggest things that happens is you say a set of values and then whatever the way that your leaders behave is the leadership modeling that actually dictates behavior because people are looking for that modeling to see what is appropriate, what is acceptable. Yes. And that's just how power goes through the organization. And so we then ladder that into what does that mean for how your leaders behave? And then also, what is the potential shadow of saying that this is important? So with collaborative, one of the shadows that we run into is slow decision-making. Not to say collaborative is great, by the way. Collaborative is No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it has a shadow side, just like any, any value does, right? Or if you say, okay, we... Let's take let's take one that actually existed. Um, yes, I was going to give give me an example. Yeah. You don't have to tell me the client necessarily, but just give me a take me through an example that would be really helpful. Let me use one that's that's relatively famous. Um, move fast and break things. That's uh, one of the original, you know, Facebook before Primata. Um, so now that actually, what I would say about that is that is a principle, not a value, which is great. Yes, that's what I like about it. What I like about it is it's principle, not a value, which means it says it, you know what to do with that, right? You know how you should behave and you could potentially imagine how leaders would behave. Now that also served them at a particular moment in time, right? 
they can no longer have the principal move fast and break things, right? Considering, you know, now the context of the world they're in, the size and the influence and the power that that Meta has as an organization, they can't, they can't, right? But it was clear at that stage what they should do. And also it had some consequences, right? There were some things that were broken and there were learnings that happened. And, and so there is a shadow side of that, which is it, it does downplay risk. And when you look at what happened, um, it says, you know, you should, there are very, um, there are cultures that are highly compliant that would never have that, that would never have that principle. Yes, yes. That's just one example. No, that's a great example. And I understand that. And, and I think you're right. And therefore, that does bring into, again, my other sort of other question is, should values, principles hmm. be enduring or do they need to evolve depending on the size and stage of the company? So I personally believe that they should probably evolve or at least be revisited depending on the size and the stage of the company, because the, you know, what, what gets you to, what gets you to five people does not get you to 5,000 people. And what gets you to 5,000 people does not get you to 500,000 people. Yeah. And you need different behaviors. You need different structures. You need different systems. And so oftentimes you need different ways of operating. However, you know, take Amazon, for example, Amazon and the idea of customer obsession has always been integral since the founding of Amazon. And it's, it's actually dictated a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the behavior of Amazon. Now that I would say, some might argue that that's been an enduring principle of, yep. of decision-making from day one, where Amazon was you know, a bookseller to today. And so I think there are some elements that are, become a part of the overarching orientation and therefore competitive advantage that an organization has yeah. that should be evergreen. But I really do think you have to pressure test it and say, is it still serving us in terms of what we need to achieve today and tomorrow versus what we needed to achieve yesterday? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, this is fascinating and I love this conversation. Um, what was the reset for you to go to Co-Collective? What, mm -hmm. what was happening inside you that went, oh, this is what I want to be doing now? Yeah, so there, it's, it's interesting. There's two... There's two resets for me around Co. Uh, one reset is why I came there. And then the other reset is why I founded the practice in organ culture design. So I'll tell you yeah. about both of those. Good. The, the reset in coming to Co was that, you know, I told you a little bit about the origin story of getting into the creative space and, and what prompted that. And I have to tell you, you know, being in a community of creatives, being in the marketing and advertising space, I was just infatuated. I was in love with it. I loved being around creative people. It was so invigorating for me. And I, but I found myself drawn towards when I had the opportunity to choose what kind of role I wanted to take on, it, it kind of felt like none to me. Like it was like, well, I'm actually interested in how we work and how we unleash more creativity and how we design the systems and how we build the organization, how we grow, how we scale. And what I realized on that journey as I took on roles that were more oriented towards working with senior creative leadership and thinking about how to build their teams, how to attract talent, how to um, cr create creative systems and processes. I realized that I wasn't in love with advertising. Um, I was in love with creativity and innovation. And I never watched TV. I never watched ads. I never really had a passion for, for that piece of it, but I loved the people and the systems and the ways that you organize 
And so yeah, when Co came across my radar, I was in this moment where I was at a choice point. I thought about going to business school and saying, you know, when I, you know, when I thought about that, I thought about creating a company like IDEO or something that was design oriented, that was solving business problems. And then I heard about Co and I heard that Co was working farther upstream with clients, thinking about overarching purpose and how you ladder that into the organization and into your customer experience. And that appealed really deeply to me that it wasn't about the communication at the end, the story that you tell, but rather the actions that you take. That's so interesting. Do you know, I had a client, an old, very old client of mine reach out to me this week, um, or last week, uh, saying, oh, you know, loving loving what you're doing with that three set, so interesting. We were chatting away and he said, you know, what made you leave our industry? Mm. And I was, it was so interesting. And I went, but I haven't left your industry. <laughs> and... And he went, yes, you have. You do all that stuff around well-being and performance now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't do a bit around how clients meet agencies anymore or, you know, right. I do. And we do something much broader than marketing or advertising, but we work lots with marketing teams and advertising teams around linking one to the other. To me, it's the next way of making the industry so much better that we totally. can't have focused on. And totally. he was fascinating and he went, Oh, yeah. Do you know, I'd never thought about that. He said, oh, is that why you work with all those CMOs? I'm like, yeah, of course. Isn't that interesting? So did people, when you came out and you started to go to code, did they do the same thing going, oh, it was, was, was it not good at being in the creative industry then? Did it not work? Mm. You know, it's interesting. I think because Co is still in the kind of creative you yeah. know, touch brand, we touch, um, even though we don't do kind of traditional advertising and marketing. Yeah. I, People still see it as tangentially there, but I, people did ask me, especially when I created the practice, the organization and culture practice, and went on my journey to, you know, go back to school for organizational psychology. There, there was definitely a question of of stepping farther away from yeah. the creative space. And to your point exactly, I see myself as stepping closer. I I feel like what I do in thinking about teams and leadership and management and the structures and systems to support creativity and innovation as as stepping closer to impact than I've ever been. Yes. And what makes the biggest difference? Mm. In terms of like teams and the work that I do? Yeah. If you're, well, actually, so if you say, you know, you're making more impact, what is it you're doing now that makes more impact than ever before? So that kind of goes back to why I created the practice. So the, let me tell you the quick story of that. Mm. We were at Co. We were we were doing really exciting work. We were, you know, our central ethos story doing. So it's this idea of not just telling a story, but actually putting it putting it into action. And this is oriented around. We really believe that that organizations and experiences should be purpose led, and having an overarching purpose needs to be experienced by the actions and behaviors that are that are happening within and outside of your organization. Yeah. And we were bringing amazing ideas and innovations and and really transformation to our clients and and sometimes it was getting through. I mean, we knew that we were driving radical alignment at the leadership level through our process and we knew that there were ideas that were actually turning into reality, but it was taking way longer than we thought it would. And it was also hitting friction that we didn't think it would inside the organization. 
Yeah. And when we asked our clients, what's standing in your way? You know, we always ask as part of our process, what is your antagonist? What stands in the way of you achieving what you want to do? And I kid you not, so many clients said to us before they gave us the, you know, the answer that they thought we were looking for, they would say, other than ourselves. And that was a big signal <laughs> to me and to us. Yeah, yeah. That there was a missing piece. There was a missing piece, which was thinking about, if you want to undergo a transformation, any kind of transformation, you need to care for the internal systems, structure, processes, capabilities, culture that will either stand in its way or support it. And that was the impetus for my own journey in, in going back to school for organizational psychology, bringing that into the work that we do, thinking about our IP and the frameworks we wanted to use to supercharge that, thinking about the work that we already do that is that work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that expression other than ourselves standing in our way. I, you know, I look back to when I sold Oyster Catchers to Centaur mm. and, you know, we found it difficult. We'd mm. never, you know, we'd run our own thing for a long time. We yeah. None of us had really ever worked in a PLC. We worked in agencies, but it's mm. so, so different. And actually listening to that feels very triggering to me in a, in a, in a positive way, actually, mm. you know, because I had that moment of really not getting on with it, not not mm. liking it. All my so many of my partners resigned because they hated it. Mm. And actually, what we did, but what I did, mm. got in the way of myself and mm -hmm. everyone else, and I couldn't see out. Uh, so you must meet people like that all the time. What do you do to help them maybe look up again or or, or get out of their get out of their way? So I think it all begins with understanding, right? The thing is, you you know, this idea of we're standing in our own way, you, uh, the human ability to lose oneself in oneself, the human ability to lose oneself in a system is unprecedented. You know, you can't see, you can't see anymore you because your the narrative that you tell yourself about even yourself even your own experience it becomes a piece of a narrative that helps you understand the world and when you think about your team or a broader organization i'm a strong believer in the power of narratives you start to tell a narrative about the team and why it operates the way it does and what matters and and when you get stuck i mean i've been on teams even recently where we've gotten stuck and we just can't get out of our own way. And all of a sudden the energy starts to go to the tension instead of to the task. Yes, yes, completely. And that, oh, that breaks my heart every time. There's something, you know, in organizational psychology, there's something called anti-task behavior. So it's this idea in group dynamics that you, you start to, the, the group will start to focus on something that they that they believe is the task. And so that might be, untangling the politics and then all of a sudden all the energy and resources of the team is untangling the politics versus building the new product yes and that is just that that is like if i do anything i want to yeah. i want to stop the wasted energy i want to take that energy i want to put it towards creativity fulfillment satisfaction enthusiasm like create the momentum yes I can so see that. And, and so, you know, so for me, what happened was I had an amazing client, actually he's the mm. chief executive of Wix now, um, who sat me down one day and went, right, okay, let's just go through this now. And basically he probably would have said the words, you're getting in the, in the way of yourself, but I don't remember those specific words, which is why I like what you're saying. 
And he just went, look, you have some options. These are the options. And right, now what do you really want to do? And, yeah. and to your point, get on with the task. Stop giving me all these reasons why you're not actually doing the thing you really, really need to do. And by the way, you know what to do. So he mm-hmm. said that for me. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And actually, then I went to the chief exec. She was brilliant. She went, oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I hadn't quite realized that, right? This is, this is how we can help you. This is how we can support you. This is what we can do differently. And then from then on, I oh. still feel hugely proud that I'm still part of that business because, but it was that moment. And it was literally like lifting, I don't know, whatever had come over my eyes, like, oh, yeah. So how do you, and David knew me super, super well. He's been a business client friend for a long time. So I think Mm. he could, I'm sure other people must have said it to me. Yeah. He was the one that cut through. How do you get that cut through with people who just can't listen to you? So I think there's two things. One, when I was talking about understand, you have to understand the narrative. Like, what is the dominant narrative? Like, what were you telling yourself? What were the what were the stories that you were telling yourself? And when you start to recognize those stories, then you can, that's the only way to shift them. You know? So in order to break through to people who are not hearing, I mean, I've, I've definitely had clients in the past who really do not want to hear what I have to say. And you have to know them a, and you have to build trust because I think if you don't have trust, it's kind of like, you know, are you familiar with the radical candor concept? Yes. Um, so it, it's kind of like that, which is radical candor is based on the premise that there is trust and there is good intent, that you're not actually trying to bring anything down, that you have a good intention. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's true with breaking through to people too, which is to say, I know what you care about. I know that you want to see this organization succeed, or I know you want to see this product launch, or I know that you feel like you've told me that the the team dynamic is getting in your way right now. Let me share with you some observations and you can decide what you, whether you agree with those or whether you don't, and let's talk about them. Mm. But you do have to begin from a desire to at least hear the observations. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And and I think, you know, I make it sound so easy. Like I had that moment of epiphany. I didn't. I went through weeks of still going, yeah, but it's not my fault and it's not fair. And and then, you know, there is that moment. But I, to to your point, I completely trust him. I know that he had my best. And and but we had to both be very open. That radical candor is so important. And then your point about before, do you know what? We all have that actually to do something. You yeah. can't go, oh, yeah, hey, we got this now, and then yeah. not actually do something. And and also it still be really, really tough. It yeah. wasn't suddenly, oh, this is so easy. It wasn't. It took another nine months. Yeah. 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 And I think I wonder whether that's another thing that we want to happen now in business, particularly, mm-hmm. is we just then imagine like the rest of our lives a bit like a kind of, you know, you can either be like Netflix and you can just keep going and going and going. Yeah. You can't because we're in real life <laughs> or it'll instantly happen like Instagram and it'll all be 30 seconds and it'll all be fine. Yeah. This is just making me think about, you have to give, I think you have to give people permission to be honest with you and you have to I mean, it sounds like in the in the situation you were talking about, you also had a fair amount of emotional awareness about your own reactions to that, right? When you ask someone for feedback about something and you need, you actually need them to give you honest feedback, you have to give them permission. You have to say, listen, 
I need to hear some hard things about my leadership, or I need to hear, I need you to give it to me straight. (laughs) What, what what do you think is wrong here? And, and you need to be willing to hear it. And it is so hard. I mean, I, 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 you can feel, I can feel my own kind of resistance to hearing negative feedback about what I'm doing. Even as I say it, I could, you know, I could say, okay, give it to me. Tell me right now. Yep. It's hard, but I think that's hard because we hold ourselves to such high standards and there's such pressure to perform to be. Yeah. 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 And then I think the other thing I found, again, in hindsight, this is really interesting to talk this through. And one of the things we talk a lot, particularly when we're talking about well-being in the workplace, and it's about noticing, noticing change, and then being there on the journey. You can't fix everything, you know, and as the clients we do this, we can't. What we can do is just show a journey and a framework and stuff. But what we can do is, is be there. And David was there for me. He's still there for me now, but, you know, he was definitely there on my side. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, does, does that make a difference as well? That kind of being there to, to see the outcome, to help on the journey rather than, because again, I think I, what I see in lots of businesses now is they sort of want maybe a short intervention. <laughs> actually, that doesn't always work. Like one-offs don't work. Short intervention. Sometimes you need something a bit more than that. Mm. really make change happen. I totally agree. I mean, listen, you know, with our, if it were up to me, we would be engaged with clients for a much longer time to see real transformation. Of course, it's, you know, the limitations of budget, et cetera. But when we have been able to be engaged for, you know, we were engaged with a client last year for a year. And it's, it's interesting because they, they came in to ask us to think about a particular uh, challenge around the hybrid work and the future of work that they were designing and and yet, when I think about the impact we really drove for their organization, it was actually working with their leadership team and watching the leadership team dynamic evolve in how they worked together on the actual task, where I feel like we drove the most impact. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Really, really helpful insight. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about another quick reset before we finish, yeah. which is... You being a mum. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I feel my children are now 22 and 24 and they have grown up through actually, well, they don't really remember the first one. They were too young, but certainly my last three businesses. And and even both of them have worked for me at different times. And we did a lovely well-being festival on a beach recently and they both came and worked there. Um, how is it changing and impacting your life? And mm-hmm. And particularly your work life. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting because as I was reflecting on, you know, moments of reset, in some ways I was thinking, well, you know, becoming a becoming a mom for me felt less like a reset and more like um an evolution, right? Like it's but in some ways it is a reset because you're setting things differently and you're you're orienting things differently. I think, you know, if I'm if I'm being radically honest, it was much harder than I thought. Um I'd always wanted to be a mom. I was, I loved working with kids and, and yet the, the transformation, the, the shift in identity, the trying to negotiate what kind of mother I wanted to be and how I would do it in my own way and, and try to shield myself from the pressures of the extraordinary expectations around what it looks like to be a good mother, what it looks like to be a good working mother. Right. And, 
yes. thinking about balancing all of the multitude of priorities along with the still incredibly strong social expectations of what mother motherhood looks like. Yes. And having to metabolize that at the same speed of metabolizing all of the new things you need to learn about actually taking care of a child physically was super overwhelming for me. It was very overwhelming. It was very overwhelming. And I think it was hard for me also because of the timing of when we had our son to peel apart which which parts of the transition that I was going through were were in a global pandemic. Yeah. Were you know, total, total and radical isolation for, you know, the first year. Right. Um, yeah. And, and what that wasn't what I'd expected my pregnancy to be like, right. To be only with my amazing partner, husband, you know, and, and seeing my parents every once in a while, (laughs) like that was really, I didn't know what, what parts of the emotional journey for me were that versus the journey to motherhood. Yes. So, yes. Hard to peel those two things apart. Wow. And and how how do you go about, or how do you now go about kind of balancing it? You know, I think when I look back, and I did literally nothing. I just had a baby in Hong Kong, came over here, started a business, had another baby, did all those things about, oh, am I good enough? But I never really thought about it. I just went, oh, yeah. this is a nightmare, really. I wouldn't, I would be much more focused and you know I know when if Jazz my daughter or my son has children now I I know that they will be much more thoughtful than I ever was but I wonder what the way that you package up the sort of thoughts about it Mm. yeah I mean I'm still on the journey but what I would say what I would say is this I think um I've definitely had to, I've had to do it on my own terms. And one thing that I've really been grappling with is what happens. And this is something I feel like people don't talk enough about what happens when you truly love your work. I love work. I love it. And like, there are moments when, when I have the choice to hang out with my son or do my work, there are sometimes I want to do my work and, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's been, it's been hard for me to, to recognize, even to give myself permission that that's okay, but it is okay. And I, and it doesn't mean that I love my son any less or feel totally obsessed with him and fascinated by him. But, you know, the emotional energy that goes towards like, wow, like, am I, you know, am I not cut out for this because I love this other thing, but giving yourself permission to have a multitude of interests, um, my aunt said to me, she, my aunt is one of my icons and she is an incredibly successful, was a working mom growing up. And I said to her, you know, early, I said, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I feel, I do feel a, a little bit of pressure around. And she said, your son will grow up with the understanding that his mother has a myriad of diverse interests and passions. And that means that you will be a wonderful mother to him. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So right. Do you know, so right. I, one of the things I think that's made me feel most proud in the last period of time, because same like you, yeah. um, when both my children now work. Yeah. One is a psychologist and one works for a, a spirits company. Mm-hmm. And they both do things they absolutely love. 
And then, you know what, mum? We know we want to do something we love because you've always loved what you love. Yeah. Take up so much time doing it. And, you know, we've been part of that journey, but that's what we want to find. Yeah. And that's your leadership modeling, right? Like you're, you showed them that you can have a passion and that you can, that your, their work can be a worthy pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And then just finally, gosh, you know, business, chart a little boy, how do you look after particularly, we've talked a bit about purpose and a bit about creativity. How do you look after your physical and mental well-being? Yeah. So on a very practical standpoint, I do, I do yoga. Um, I have actually in the pandemic, I'd always done yoga. And in the pandemic, I, uh, a couple of friends and I just started doing a zoom yoga three mornings a week, and we've done it for two years straight. So that's been amazing. Just having even a little community that we do like 15, 20 minutes and it just starts the day off. Right. So that, yeah. And then the creativity component is really interesting. You know, one thing that was the most unexpected thing for me about becoming a mother is I've always loved writing and I've always done it. I did a lot of creative writing. I love writing. It just really lights me up. And when I was sort of in that initial postpartum period where I really struggled, I really had a lot of anxiety. I think a little depression, you know, I really struggled, but I started writing poems actually. And I had never really, you know, I'd written fun poems for you know, toasts and stuff, but never really written, you know, thoughtful, emotional poetry. And it just started pouring out of me in those moments. And so it was really interesting to kind of see a part of myself be lit up a little bit differently in terms of that transition and that reset for me. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. That's a lovely thing to do. Just, just, I don't know if we can touch back on that. You know, you said, having had your son, he had a little bit of postpartum, maybe a bit of depression. Yeah. What did that look like? How did you, maybe you haven't recovered from it. How have you, how have you coped with that? No, you know, I I definitely have. I think, I think that there's, for me in particular, the, the sleep deprivation is devastating for me. I'm someone who sleeps like nine hours a night, nine hours a night. I'm like, so so that really, really, really hard in the early days for me and, and just put me in a mental state that was very challenging. Um, and I also experienced, and I think this is obviously a piece of it was hormonal. I experienced a lot of, um, you know, fearful thoughts around caring for him and mm-hmm. all of the things that could happen. You know, a lot of mothers experiences in the early days and, um, there's a name for it too, but just like visions of all the terrible things that could happen. Yes. Catastrophization. Yeah. And, and also um, one of the things that was particularly acute was, and and this is at some point I'll write a very scathing article about this, but um, when I was looking at my phone, which I was doing a lot because I was sitting there breastfeeding, you know, I was um, middle of COVID in the middle of COVID, you know, you're not doing anything. Uh, I would get pop-ups from like the news and then from Instagram that were all about horrible things happening to babies. And I, t- I tell you, I mean, I eventually, I had to turn it all off yeah. and it was yeah. getting so bad. And I said, I said to my husband, I said, this is insane. I mean, this is an, this is an example of how detrimental social media can be and how triggering and damaging and anxiety provoking it can do when I'm at such a vulnerable spot right now. And I'm not 
I cannot, I, I also can then stop myself because I see it and I need to know and I need to read. And then, and then I can't stop thinking about it. And it was just, I was in a really bad moment with that. And that feels like, gosh, I mean, that must be happening to so many people, so many mums, maybe even oh. dads in the same way, but you know, mums. Yeah. And we know that doesn't need to happen, does it? They no. don't need to feed you that sort of stuff. Then there must be ways where you can mm-hmm. say, do you know what? I'm interested in the news, but I don't want any of this. You know, I don't yeah. want that stuff. It's so, yeah. Yeah. There was actually, someone published an article about it recently um, that my husband forwarded to me. I think it's happening to a lot of people. And so people are starting to talk about it because yeah. it's the, it's sort of the shadow side, you know, going back to shadow side, the, the shadow side of algorithms, right? Al- algorithms yes. optimize for what you're interested in. And so oftentimes it's lowest common denominator because of what you're drawn to. If you, you know, if you say, oh my God, there's, you know, the sort of sensationalist, horrific crime that happened, you read that and then it just shoots back to whatever algorithm is, is deciding what data it shows you. Oh, she spent full 15 minutes on the horrific crime. Feed her more horrific crime, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And if it's got baby linked there, hashtag must be must be right. Yeah. Make sure it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really damaging. And I, I think, you know, I know I do know that some folks over um at, at a lot of these social media companies are, are working on this and understand that this is happening and are creating settings and preferences, but that's, you know, this is, this is real time. This is all evolving, right? Social media yeah, is still relatively new. Absolutely. It feels like such a, such an important area actually that needs to yeah. be addressed um, and not overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine that happens. I mean, I'm, we're talking about kind of postpartum anxiety, et cetera, but you could, you could imagine that happens with anything, right? Like depression, suicide. Oh. Well, anything. We, know, we know the triggers for, for suicide. We know when we know the impact on young people, yeah. people who have got uh, an illness potentially, you know, and I think maybe be interesting. I'm sure they're doing some very interesting things. We should reach out and, and talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, actually understanding even what those triggers are, yeah. And I'm saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be feeling a bit vulnerable now. Let's make sure we switch this off now for the next period of time. Yeah, yeah. I, while I don't have the energy for that. So I'm not going to read that stuff. And I think yeah. sometimes you need the extra help, don't you, to do that? Yeah, you do. And you need to know that you need it. I mean, that's a, that's a big, it's a big, it's a big challenge too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I feel like we've covered so much around, you know, the business side of things, the creativity, the obviously the love for the industry you had, but then that sort of joyous understanding that if you can focus on helping people mm-hmm. get out of the way of themselves, that's the thing. That's the thing that's so important. Mm-hmm. And that at every moment in our lives, we can learn things about ourselves and as leaders from all sorts of things, from whether it is working in a cafe to being a new one. Yeah, yeah. well, it's been such a pleasure having the conversation and so excited to see so many overlapping areas of passion and interest and, and thank you for having me. It's just really grateful to be here. Well, thank you very much and I'll see you soon. Cheers. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson with me, Suki Thompson. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. <laughs>